Minds in the game, hosted by Adam Camilleri, Art of War, Down Under. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode 34 of the Art of War Down Under podcast. My name is Adam Camilleri, but you all already know that. I am joined by the indomitable and intrepid Brandon the Man Grant. How you doing, dude? Well, I'm doing really well, and I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Adam. Uh, my absolute pleasure. You are st- definitely a gentleman who I have watched and followed quite closely on a number of occasions. Playing, You and I pretty much play the same factions, the Dark Angels and Guard, pretty much being my two babies. And uh, that's pretty much what you're known for playing the most as well. It's true. It's true. Although I am starting a sister's army now, and it's almost ready for tournaments. Nice, nice, nice. Um, but yeah, men after my own heart in many, many ways. And I feel like you go about the game in a way that I certainly respect and admire. And that's pretty much what we're going to be talking about on this episode. This is going to be a player spotlight with uh, this wonderful gentleman. We're going to be talking through his journey in the game, how we got started, the highs, the lows, and what the future holds. And also the things that that uh, help, uh, helped Brandon be successful and stay successful over a myriad of different game formats and missions and editions and armies, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, prior to that, as you guys will notice, um, this podcast is no longer on the Frontline Gaming Network. We are now standalone on the Art of War um, 40k.com website and on all the other aggregates. We're pretty much going our own way in a couple of different things and trying to stand on our own two feet after the amazing and incredible start Frontline Gaming was able to support and give to us and uh, an incredible amount of gratitude for help for letting us be a part of what they're building but please um give us some likes give us some subs give us some reviews over on apple or whatever or wherever you may have found us if not jump over to patreon or the and you can purchase this podcast and the john damaris nick nanavani podcast for a nice lump sum in addition to getting the part twos of this one as well the part two of this one is literally just going to be answering a huge swathe of patron questions that people have had for mr grant when i put out that i'm going to be doing this episode with him i just got hit with a deluge of questions from our patron group asking and wanting to know his thoughts on different things so that's pretty much what part two is going to be but brandon talking about and move shifting gears into your start in the game where did you get started with like i guess nerddom or the hobbies of, of this nature where did you really get your beginning um well i think i've always been a nerd for as long as i can remember a sure. nerd in the sense of someone who is interested in things that aren't normal and gets really really into them to a possibly unhealthy degree um, <laughs> so, so just Getting into high school in my freshman year, which is 2001, um, I'd switched districts and really didn't know anyone. But one of my first friends had this activity he liked called Warhammer 40,000. And Mm. because it was 2001 and the Tau Codex had literally just been released, the gaming group that he was part of was like, well, we don't have a Tau player, so why doesn't the new guy play it? So that was my first ever 40k army was Tau. As easy as that. Hilarious. Well, um, the thing about that is I had a very rough start to 40K, and I didn't win a single game for a whole year. Was that because the, you, your knowledge of the game was, was sparse or you didn't have time to learn the rule set, or was just because you were the uncompetitive guy in a competitive group? Or I think I wanted to win, and I've been competitive on games before that. I'm, I've never been someone who's content to just, oh, that was fun, and then not try and improve after mm-hmm. a loss. 
So it wasn't that I wasn't trying to win. It was third edition was very cruel to shooting armies in the rules. And it was all about rhino rushes Mm -hmm. and uh, black Templars were at the top of their game then when they had a mechanic where if they failed a morale test, the result would be that they moved towards you. Yeah. Yeah, they um, fell forwards. I still that thing was hilarious. So that was my friend's army was Black Templars, and I would just get crushed. I would have one mm. shooting phase, and then I would just be completely overwhelmed. Um, so it took me a long time to figure out how to play Tau effectively, and what helped me in the beginning was back in the early 2000s was internet forums. So things like Tau Online yep. were a big help to figure out, oh, there's this thing called the Fish of Fury you can do where mm. enemies can charge your devil fish, but your fire warriors can shoot under it into melee at the time. Uh, I always so loved just, that men- always loved that mental image of them just like lying on the ground shooting at your ankles. Yeah, because uh, <laughs> skimmers back in the day, you could only hit them on sixes if they had moved in melee, whatever mm. your weapon skill was. And uh, the skimmer could always move away and didn't count as engaged. So you could just shoot into combat with your own transport under it because it was flying it was a really cool strategy that i hadn't thought of mm-hmm. that's actually really cool for the time and it was exactly what town needed because then eventually you got this game set where it was just like this nice castle that was being screened by a patrol of devilfish and it was really kind of it looked pretty thematic in itself like they were circling the wagons oh yeah you'd have like a couple of devilfish together because again it was armor value and you'd hit the armor mm-hmm. value you charged which the front armor of a devilfish was solid most enemies couldn't actually hurt it um and then again, they're hitting on only sixes with their attacks, so usually you'd survive. Yeah. But um, going it down this list, it's like, okay, so after a year I won a game, and then I entered <laughs> into this sort of not competitive garage hammer style player, so I didn't go to events for years. I think the uh, first time I went to an event, it must have been after 2008, 2010, somewhere in that oh, range. Wow. It was so just you, a friendly you, local gaming store. You'd been playing for almost 10 years before you attended uh, an event. That's right. Wow. Um, okay. And I, I still meet people today at, as recently as last year who literally had never played in a game store event, but I played them and went, wow, this person really knows what they're doing. So just because someone's not playing in a tournament scene doesn't mean they don't know what they're doing. Exactly right. And I think that's a, a great indictment of the game that you don't need to be attending tournaments to to have a, a high level of skill or high level of proficiency as well. And you don't need to be, you know, don't need to jump into the big the big pool straight away either. Work your way into it. If you're not com- comfortable at events, there's so many different ways to get you itch scratched in this in this hobby that I yeah, I think uh, right now Brandon's an incredible indictment of that. But 2000 and 2009, 2010, you said things started to change. You started shifting into a, a more competitive player. What were you playing at the time? Uh, that time, I had shifted into Imperial Guard. Leaf blower. I shifted into them at around 4th or 5th edition. This is back when editions didn't come every two years, so they yes. lasted quite a while. And... Um, that was when guard were reasonably good. And um, yeah, it was just this guy who would go to local events and I'd usually be someone who went two and one or three and oh at a local mm-hmm. RTT before I knew what an RTT was. And that was fun for a while. Um, and then on a whim, my first major event was the Las Vegas Open in 2014 or 2015. So the very first one they held? Um, no, not the very first. It was a couple after that. So maybe it was 2016. But um, I took a Dark Angels Guard mixed army that abused the old power field. So mm-hmm. it was an army of two Dark Angels uh, tech marines and a Dark Angels librarian, all with power fields, in the center of conscript blobs in front of layman Rest Punishers wow. with multi-multi okay. sponsors. 
And everything <laughs> in the army had a four plus and vulnerable save. Yeah, yuck. Yuck, yuck, yuck. It was, that was gross. Was that fifth? That was fifth edition, you said? Yeah, that was fifth edition. Yeah. So I remember the power fields went away in sixth. Yeah, uh, so power fields were the three within three inches of the character, friends mm-hmm. and enemies have an invulnerable save. Yeah, the fact that it was enemies as well was hilarious. Um, but so hard to exploit. But yeah, some of the some of the best players could get hard away to with exploit it. When you have 30 conscripts and a perfect sphere around the character, mm. so you can't actually charge into range anyway. Yeah. Um, it was pretty cool, and no one else was running a list like that at the time. And I ended up going five and one at my first ever LVO. Wow. So that was your was that your first uh, two day your first five gamer? That was my first five or six game event ever fantastic i had wow. never left my hometown area for an event before that and it was just on a whim it's like yeah sure let's go to las vegas that'll be fun dude well done and crazy to think that you know you just kind of stepped onto the scene in such a manner um what's your where does your love of god and dark angels come from um well when you think about it, it it's not only the gameplay style because you're thinking i went from tau to guard to mm-hmm. hybridizing with dark angels and it's a lot of very shooty numerous armies so I do like keeping enemies at arm's length if I can and playing more defensively and being like, okay, I'm just going to try and create situations where if the game continues this way, I win and I have to leave yeah. it up to my opponent to figure out how to get around it. Yes. Um, um, so that's an uninteractive uh, board state in which you, you've got dominance if nothing changes. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to go for. And it's just this inevitability in this grinding game where it's like, well, I'm going to win if nothing changes. You need to mm. figure out what risks you need to take to change this and then anticipating what they're going to do. There's a term used there, grinding. And I like people, people use this term a lot and a lot of people describe it in different ways. What would be your description of, of grinding on the tabletop? Avoiding game breaking situations where one mm. catastrophe causes the game to go completely the other way. Dude. Yeah. Um, very well said. Very well said. So grinding in the sense that you might win or lose certain engagements based on the roll of the dice, but any one failure isn't going to cost you the game yeah so it's pretty much a denial so you, you play fluidly around your opponent denying them any like huge hammer blows or crux moments which will decide the outcome one way or another because you always want to you're playing a, a, a numerous force usually you're playing with an army that usually yeah. has a numerical advantage and so best way to maintain that and advantage is to not let a huge like half your army get picked up in one turn yes and typically that was the way the tau played as well especially fourth edition which would be you lose a little i lose a little but i hold the objectives i win yeah, exactly right. Uh, and Tau was a lot of Tau. I think I feel like Tau was more fun in age in years gone past than it is now. Is that you reckon that's a true statement? Like, well, considering the I haven't played, played Tau since Fourth Edition, I oh, can't well, really enough. weigh in as an expert in Seventh, Eighth, or Ninth. But feel having been on the receiving end of modern Tau, I'd say that it was a lot more movement based mm. in the past. But not to say there haven't been some very talented Tau players who have focused more on the movement game. But it seems yeah. like the modern Tau army, as it existed at the end of eighth and now mid ninth, was a lot of focus on auras overlapping and creating this yeah. unchargeable death ball. Yeah, it was like creating a latticework of of drones and units to to become like yeah, like the the Tau shield wall mechanic where you just have infinite shield drones in front of all mm. your riptides was not the same as fourth edition Tau at all. Nah. Well, so I, the analogy I use for Tau, when people would say, "Oh, Tau doesn't take any, doesn't take any thinking, doesn't take any skill," and it's it's funny that I dig up um, somebody. So I used to play, I played Blood Angels in Fourth Edition. That was kind of my army back then, and I kind of gave up. I was I wasn't very good at the game. I was I was in my like wasn't even a teenager yet. I don't think maybe I was ten or eleven, and I just got ruffle stomped by Tau because I didn't understand the mechanics very well, and. Um, 
somebody said, I kept saying to them, oh, it doesn't take any skill, it doesn't take any nothing, nothing, nothing. And I remember it was my arts teacher at the time who was playing the tower. He said, this thing only plays in two in two phases. It only plays a shooting phase and a movement phase. And you know what that means? That means I need to be perfect in two phases rather than being able to be sloppy in five phases. And that's how I've kind of thought about tower ever since. But I think that's dropped off more and more. Yeah, I would like a return to more movement-based Tau. Yeah, me too. But um, we'll see what happens with their latest Codex update whenever that comes out. I'm thinking exactly. that the shield drone, take 40 shield drones and three riptides is not going to be a thing they want to return to anytime soon. Mm, yeah, I agree. And it seems like the way they're going with shield drones just just seems like they either, it's going to become a completely new mechanic, like they'll completely rewrite it, because I think there are some things that do need a rewrite. I think Markalice need a rewrite as well. Um, but that's a test. We'll save that for a Tau episode. If Brandon. we're talking about <laughs> finding styles and figuring out what armies match your style. I think my one loss at my first LVO was the most instructive and it Brilliant. changed the way I thought about 40 K forever. And it was to Nick Nanavati. So everyone else that I'd played, my list was built like a defensive sledgehammer. So you would charge into my wall of 90 invulnerable save conscripts, which were fearless because dark mm -hmm. angels characters were fearless. fearless. Yep. And then I would murder you. Mm -hmm. And what inevitably happened in th that game is he was playing this weird mix with chaos demons and an inquisitor in it because this is when you can bring apocalypse allies. Yeah. And he just looked at my army and went, nope, not, not charging into that thing headlong. Mm. So he started only a unit of plague drones on the board. And then he played very cagey with the rest of his list to never give me any opportunities to land a decisive death blow. And he ended up winning back when it was primary, secondary, tertiaries. He won the primary by a point, so we got five points for that. And he won the secondary by a point, so we got five points for that. And then he got all his tertiaries. So he got a perfect win, just perfectly. And he played that very defensive, wow. grindy playstyle perfectly, so that he never gave me any opportunities to end the game. And he always exploited wherever I wasn't focused on the table. So it was just like, wow, I've never seen someone play 40k in such a calculating manner where they're not just mm. throwing a bunch of corn demons straight at your lines until they get gunned down no they're they're only throwing a little bit here and there and not giving you any opportunities to strike that critical blow and th so, that was my biggest takeaway from that event was holy cow i've never played 40k this way that mm. was amazing so you're saying this is how you learned how you wanted to play the game yes Fantastic. So that was pretty much just a, a demonstration that, hey, there is another level to this game, and that's where I want to be. Yeah, it wasn't just, I'm going to build an army, and you're going to throw your army at me, and I'll win because I've calculated mm -hmm. it. It's, I need to think about movement and how different units can be reserved or not, and use of terrain, um, melee threat zones, all of this push-pull mechanic where you're not committing or over-committing more than you need to in order to just barely win uh, while taking mm. as little risk as possible. So it, it sounds like you're a gentleman who is very much accustomed to losing. How do you take losing? How do you cop it on the chin? Or how do you think about losses or maneuver around them and find the, the things you need to grow? So first of all, um, if you're thinking of gaming in general, the big advantage to playing a war game as opposed to a real war is even if you have nothing <laughs> left at the end of the game, you get to walk away from it and try again yeah. another time. So it's the most yeah. quirky thing that I can think of. And you really shouldn't be disappointed in any loss where after the fact you can look at it and go, oh, I could have done something different. Mm. A really disappointing loss would be one where you didn't learn anything from it or there was unsportsmanlike behavior or 
I don't know. I don't know what you call it. Or it but I don't think bullying is the right word, but let's call it poor sportsmanlike conduct. Yeah. But um, if there's it, not that, it's an opportunity to learn how someone else played the game in a way that surprised you. Yeah. Uh, I think so. Here's a, a, a nice question building off that. With, I think I've been in a position where I've lost a game that I expected to win and thought I played perfectly. And then, you know, whether it's days, weeks, months down the track, being like, actually, you didn't play perfectly. Um, how do you, or every, I know everyone's probably got a friend who's like that as well, being like, oh, I lost, I got diced, blah, blah, blah. How do you remove, how do you become dispassionate? Like, you're famous about, you know, people call you the cyborg or the robot or the calculator. Sure. Um, how are you able to look at the game so dispassionately and, and gain the, the most knowledge for the return? So, first of all, going back to that, Playstyle, we'll call it grinding, where you're trying to minimize yeah. risk. Uh, there's a game that I had against Junior Aflehi, who is another Southern California very Great player. competitive player. And he was running Imperial Knights with Guard Allies at the time versus a pure Guard Army I was running. And um, he had a Knight Valiant and a Knight Gallant. And the Knight Gallant had a two up armor save. And it was House Hawk Shroud. So he had this strat where he could. Um, Overwatch with the knight when you charged somebody else and then move with it 2d6 inches, including charging yep. you. And I had built, he, he went first, his gallant made a long charge turn one using stratagems and got up in my face and started dealing some damage and was annoying. Valiant really didn't do too much turn one because it couldn't see anything. Mm -hmm. My following turn, I built up this amazing plan where I knew I could throw my Bulgrins into combat with the Gallant and prevent it from falling back because I had enough Guardsmen with move, move, move to completely zone out his fallback move. Yep. So even though he can fall back from infantry and move over infantry, if he can't end the move more than an inch away from any infantry, mm -hmm. he can't fall back. And I'm like, this True. is brilliant. I'm locking down the Gallant for a turn. I'll focus everything I have on the Valiant, which was also my old grudges warlord trait target, and I should easily take it down through four plus plus invulnerable saves because I've got three tank commanders and a couple basilisks that are just going to wreck it. But after a bunch of dice were rolled, it still had 14 wounds remaining. Wow. After, you know, 2,000 points of guard had shot into it with old grudges. And I'm just like, well, that wasn't supposed to happen. Because uh, mm. there were just an insane number of four plus and vulnerable saves made. Like at one point, my relic battle cannon did six wounds and he made every save. So that was a potential 18 damage and it went damage, to zero. Yeah. Oh, brutal. So anyway, I went ahead and charged the Gallant. Turned out it was 11.9 inches away from the Valiant. So he got his overwatch. But more importantly, he moved closer to me. And at the end of the after that turn, the Valiant picked up a tank commander or two because it was close enough with its harpoon to do that. And the game mm -hmm. snowballed from there into a loss. And after the game, I went, well, that was extremely unlikely that the Valiant would survive that plan. Yep. <clears throat> but is there a way that I could have played so that even if the Valiant lived the way it did, I would still win? How do I minimize that risk of things going wrong? Mm -hmm. And the answer was, yes, I didn't actually need to charge the Gallant. Because uh, charging okay. the Gallant just, gave yeah, him the overwatch... Just... So I could have just planned so that his knight is zoned out from moving and I don't yep. engage it in combat and then I'd be totally fine. Because, because you've already done you've already done half the work, haven't you? You moved moved all those conscripts behind it, blocked off all the avenues. That's right. But you so just, I, you just I, let him shoot and, and attack you in combat. Him free from mm. him so he can't heroically intervene and yep. he's still blocked from movement. Yep. But it's guaranteed that the Valiant will not be able to get closer and get in harpoon range. Ooh, that's a big deal, isn't it? That's a huge yeah. deal. So yeah, oh, so you you thought about how you can do the same thing in a more safe manner, and you 
it, it was really interesting how you pointed that out. Like you immediately were like, how can I get the same result in a different way? And maybe you can't, maybe you can't get a better result in a different way, but it's important you think about it, isn't it? Yes. But it's also important that you don't give into your emotions that say, well, that's BS. Mm. There was like a less than 5% chance or whatever yeah. percent chance it was that he'd roll so well on his saves or I'd roll so poorly on my damage. So it should have died. My game was robbed. You don't want to think that way because it doesn't help you. So mm. the attitude that I try and cultivate is one that says, does this help? Because the only thing I want to do at the end of the day is play better. I can't actually tell the dice what to do. And yep. even if I'm the best player and playing the worst player, the dice can just decide, you know what? Uh, this isn't your day. That's always possible. Your yep, opponent could absolutely. always make every save and you could always fail every attack or flub every mm -hmm. save yourself. It's possible. So at the end of the day, you can't control whether you win or lose to an 100% degree. The only thing you can control is playing in a way that minimizes your risk of losing or maximizes your chance of winning. Yes, dude, yeah, so spot on. That's how I try and remain focused and machine-like and be like, oh, that was a really fun game. Great job on winning. Also, I need to think about this now. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that. I love that approach. Just that uh, I wish I could be more dispassionate in my games a lot of the time because I'm I'm a well, I'm a guy who's I'm fueled by passion for the community and for the hobby. And I find that, that sometimes that takes over and then I, I lose perspective on what's important. And I've I've been known to be a bit of a salty bitch sometimes. <laughs> and uh, I I really admire the fact that you're able to do that. Um certainly yeah. something I aspire the to. Way you do it, shift your goal from winning games to playing as well as possible because yes. that is something you have hundred percent control over. Um, and is that something you've always been able to do or is that something you've learned or were taught or picked that up along the way? That was something that I learned relatively early, but is definitely something that had to be learned, not something that you come with. Mm. Yeah, no, totally fair enough. Uh, all right, so transitioning over to the next one. So what was the, when was the first time you won a, a big event? I'm not saying like LVO caliber, what's the first like GT you ever won? And what I were you playing? It was the Bay Area, Bay Area Open 2017. Yep. So yeah, it was the 2016 LVO was my first one. So the 2017, I played a pure Dark Angels battle company and ended up going 6-0 and and winning the event, which was the Oof. first one I'd ever done. And it was at a time when Dark Angels were considered garbage. Yeah. So... I think Pablo and the frontline team just went crazy because they're like, see, Dark Angels can win. You guys shouldn't be sad. Um, but yeah, it was just unusual that a battle company of pure Dark Angels was able to win an event. Yeah, because it was it was the Lion's Blade, yeah? And it was, just, it was just deemed to be a worse version of the regular battle company. And at the time, everyone was playing a White Scars battle company, yeah? White Scars was just seen as far superior. Uh, the mm -hmm. Jinx saves of the um, Black Knight Riders wasn't seen as good enough because they were re-rollable. Yep but it was a cover save, so there was enough ignores cover mm. effects that you just pick them up. And it was also still when blast templates existed, so if you didn't target them, but the blast covered them, they didn't get to jink. So yes. you had so to you play can never that army so, so you within Yeah, you can never have them within three inches of anything else. Otherwise, people would just chuck up. I, I used to do it. Hell, I used to do it with the Demolisher Cannon. I'd chuck it on, so we'd clip three, three Black Knights or three bikes, but it was hitting the, the Tac Marines or the Rhino next to them. Correct. And... Um, the, the fact was the Lion Blades was so big that sometimes you didn't have an option in like Dawn of War. You had to have them next to each other. Um, and it was a huge problem for a lot of people who were trying to make that work. So how did you, how did you make it work? Um, very carefully and with yep. a mentality that didn't mind throwing away bodies for time. Like hmm. there were a few games where I was just charging transports into things just to tie them up or throwing bodies on objectives knowing full well that they're already dead. Uh, yeah. Like in my final game, there was a Wraith Knight 
and I ended up throwing a five-man squad into it, even though it was already engaged. And like one or two guys survived, and because Dark Angels were stubborn, they didn't take penalties to their morale, they yep. held, which meant the Wraith Knight just ended up killing a Space Marine on his own turn. Um, <laughs> stuff like that. It was just, again, really grindy, where you're just yeah. calculating, like, okay, how, do, how many men do I need to throw into this Wraith Knight to stop it for one more turn? Mm. A really interesting approach to the game uh, is, so talking about, I guess, talking about preparation and practice, you say you're always calculating, you're always doing, how much due diligence or how much prep do you do uh, before an event? I make Excel spreadsheets. So Yikes. <laughs> um, I'm an engineer in real life and I'm pretty familiar with numbers. And that is probably my strength that I bring to this game is the ability to calculate things ahead of time. So I have a reasonable expectation of what the result should be bias it a little bit so that you have a reasonable expectation of success. And then it's like, okay, um, like back in the day, it was a squad of guardsmen will kill four Marines with rapid fire if they have an order, two if they're in rapid fire without an order, and one if they are at long range. Yep. Uh, and so uh, that's just a, an example of the, the kind of metrics you'll go through. Yes, that would be it. And then I'd go through Excel spreadsheets of what damaging weapon is best for which scenarios, mm. how much I should expect. And when you do the math, you end up figuring out, first of all, that some attacks are really spiky. So sometimes there's like a 30% chance you just do no damage because your weapon yeah. is like D6 damage and they make their invulnerable save twice in a row. And you're like, oh, never mind. <laughs> um, and other times you're like, okay, this weapon's like 20 shots. It's going to average out really well. And you can go through all these points efficiencies and you start realizing, oh, if I get a reroll to wound ability, now that actually becomes reasonably effective. So I can build my list knowing that I can use that ability in a pinch, it just gives you all of these plays ahead of time where once you actually get to the table, you're not making that many decisions because you've made all those decisions ahead of time before you get there. So you're, you're front-loading your knowledge base. You're pretty much getting all the due diligence done beforehand. You're literally doing all the due diligence beforehand. So the, the question was, uh, how much due diligence do you do beforehand? And the answer was all. <laughs> <laughs> well, at the time, especially in 2017, I didn't have access to all of the rules because mm. um, I was still very casual. So there were still plenty of gotchas that I had to be looking out for. And to this day, I think understanding rule interactions is still the thing I'm least good at. But understanding the core mechanic of hit, wound, save, damage has been my strength. Mm. So you're understanding all the variables there within. And then, you know, you have to take, like you said, being a a competitive player, you take into account all the things that people can throw you away, e.g. transhuman being a great example. Yeah. So it'd be like, is transhuman worth it? Well, if I do the math, you're spending two CP to save one 40-point model. Probably not. Mm -hmm. Correct. Especially if you can res the guy. Yeah. Uh, so transitioning from that, when you do your due diligence and you, you, you work out you know, what you need to do the metrics against. Do you do your metrics against every competitive army or every army you're expected to see or you just pick out the top, where you expect the top players to be or how do, how do you really do it? Or you just do it off everyone? A lot of the time the models have significant overlap. Like how many T7 three-up armor save things are there in the game? Every faction's got like three. Yeah, so once you've calculated that once, you've done a lot of cross-faction calculations. Mm -hmm. um, or marine equivalent stuff, T4, T5, 3-up armor, or marine equivalent with storm shield, T4, T5, 2-up or 1-up, 4-up and vulnerable. Um, there's a lot of models that have those stats right now. So once you've done the calculation once, great. And then you look at things like damage reduction 1. On a 2-wound model, it just means that they have 3 wounds, except Correct. against damage 1 weapons, in which case they have 2. So once you yeah. think of them as 
heavy intercessors with T4, you're like, oh, okay. And then you can just move on. Like you don't have mm. to keep doing more math. Yeah, because the same math is, is transposable, I, I guess. That's very interesting. So you, do you just do the metrics on the hits and the wounds and the da- and the, the saves? Or do you do you ever extrapolate that into, into wider things like uh, charge rolls, psychic tests? I did CP. make an Excel spreadsheet on char- charge rolls on literally every conceivable charge roll you could think of, including crack and gene stealers getting hit by the swarm ward ability and Yikes. Uh, you know the the warp time ability on things like Magnus. And at the end of the day, um, the easiest metric that I had, assuming that a 10% chance of success was acceptable and that your opponent wouldn't go for that if it's a 10% chance of I win and 90% I lose, then the thing you want to assume is that every time they have to roll a die, it's a five. And turns out fives are really easy to add. So you can do that in your head versus every army in the game instantly. Um, so it's like, okay, they can advance and then they charge 3d6 rerollable. I don't need to think about any of it. Every dice is a five. That's 20 mm. inches. Got it. So you say you plan for just above the average? Uh, I plan for, I want 90% success. Because yes. if I have 90% success and my opponent has 10% success, they're not going to make that decision or they're throwing mm. the game. Yes, exactly right. And of course, those things come with big, big, risks, big risks and rewards. Uh, back to going competitive was that something you found easy or came naturally to you or was that just a a progression of the the journey already on or was it a a conscious decision you made it was a natural progression so even winning the itc and the las vegas open that was never a solid goal for me because Mm. my attitude was always i'm just going to play as well as i can the goal was never i need to win a gt or i need to win a certain Mm. number of gts or i need to win the biggest gt or i need to win the itc it was I'm going to go to events and have fun for as long as I'm having fun, and I'm going to play as well as I possibly can. Nice. Dude, that's an amazing perspective. Amazing perspective. Jeez, wish I had it. I, th- <laughs> do, I think that's going to be difficult to do in the future because of the changes they've made to scoring events, because I did manage to win some very large events the year that I won ITC. But yep. um, the thing is, um, there have been some ITC winners in the past who were much more going to a, on a huge number of events. And I think that mm. if that is your goal is to win the ITC, I think that that is good advice is you need to attend a lot of events to maximize the number of points you get, which is kind of yep. the point of the ITC system when you think about it. Uh, mm. Rewards people for playing more games. But for the rest of us, my suggestion is pick events that you're going to have fun with, mm-hmm. um, especially events where you can go with your friends and have social time and then research 40k ahead of time, play some practice games. But my fear in going to a lot of these competitive edges is that I'm going to get burned out. And I've seen that in other competitive settings um, where, for example, someone I knew did competitive League of Legends for a while and they got burnt out real quick when they're like playing the same character over and over and over again, Mm. like 10 times a day. And they're like, no, this is the only character I'm good at. I don't want to play this character anymore. I don't want to play competitive anymore. I'm done. So mm. that was another one of my goals is avoiding burnout, which was more important to me than winning events was just how is this going to continue to give me a good time? And I don't know, improve the 40 K community because another nightmare of mine would be um, getting so focused on winning, which is again, something I cannot directly control that I end up making yep. the game miserable for my opponent. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. I swear, that's always a fear of mine as well, but I get so caught up in my head and my goals that I um, I neglect my opponent's enjoyment. 
But all that said, um, you were talking about the first event that I won, which was BAO. Yeah. Well, so that, that, so B freaking AO was the first event you won, and that was a was that one that was one of the yes the end of seventh edition. Yeah. That was the end of seventh, and then I actually went ahead and won the next BAO as well. So I think I'm yeah. the only person to date who's done two in a row. Mm. And that was both seventh edition, weren't they? So it was, no, that was the, the last two. Years. The next one was a new edition and a new army. I ended up winning that one with. Um, no, I have to remember what I won that with. So you went yeah, to the ITC. Yeah, you went to the ITC after winning BAO, and you came runner-up to Mr. Perkins, I believe. Uh, yes, actually, that was the 2017 LVO. I was at yep. the finals table and lost by Brett Perkins. I remember watching that game and just being like, yeah, this is the worst the game's ever been. And um, that's no, nothing disparaging on you. That was just the state of the game. I agree. Uh, my army had three different factions in it. Mm-hmm. Um, his army had like three different factions in it. And then it basically came down to whoever rolled and went first was going to win that game. He went first, mm-hmm. and I lost by a point, which was first. And you guys, you guys didn't get out of uh, turn two, did you? Uh, I think we went through turn three very quickly. Yeah, I remember sitting back watching the game, being two and a half turn, two and a half um, hours in, and being like, "And Brett's still in his second shooting phase." I'm just being yes. like, "Yep, Brandon's going to get a because five minute turn two, and then we'll see for what those happens." Who are not aware, blast templates when you shoot four blast templates per gun, and the guns are forty points, take a very long time to resolve, especially yes. when both players links. have to agree how many hits each template is getting. Yeah, you both have to look. You both have to look down from different angles across a, you know, a three foot, four foot table and agree upon what you're yeah, both seeing out of the template. A hundred for that 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 army Perkins ran for like what was 160 odd blast templates he put down a turn or something crazy. It was very high, and they're all small blast templates that chain, so they have to flip over, which also made it even yeah. more delicious to resolve how many hits he got. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, it was it was disgusting. Uh, but yeah, so you're saying you won the BIO after that, which would have been Index. Um, actually, for anyone who wants to dig that up, when you see the interview of me after that game, I was thrilled. I was yeah. thrilled to have lost. Are you kidding me? Like mm. that was my first ever LVO finals, and to get second place after fa- playing on the top table, that was incredible. Just and, happy to be there. Love yeah. It. As f- as far as the armies being toxic, I do not miss that at all. For anyone mm. who doesn't know what a bark bark star is, Google it. Um, but that that was just so fun to go that far, even though I lost. Exactly right. Uh, so when people think of talk about how uninteractive um, some builds are these days or have been, the bark bark star was literally the perfect incarnation of the non-interactive build. Correct. You had somewhere between what was it, uh, thirty and sixty. Fenrisian wolves, forty in mine. Yeah, you, you actually had a, you actually had a baby one by by a lot of standards. A, a Jeremy Marigold won CanCon that year, playing the maxed out version, and it had it had hit and run, which was fall back and charge essentially, which was very hard to come by. It all had a feel no pain of uh, either a five plus or a four plus, depending if you got endurance off. It was all six only six to hit, so like a Collectus assassin um, if you got invis- visibility off, and then it had a four plus invulnerable save from Azrael to always fall back upon. Yep, um, and it was just disgusting. Like, oh, so disgusting. Yeah, I ran mine with no psychers whatsoever and no hit and run. I was running the baby version. So just with Azzy and yeah. uh, that's it. And a priest. Nice. And a priest, of course. That's how I had the three factions. I had a minister and priest from Imperial Guard because his prayer in combat was re-roll your saving throw. Mm. So in combat, I had a re-rollable four plus and vulnerable save followed by a five up feeling of pain if I was near an objective. Of course, yeah, they need the objective bit. I forgot about that. Um, yeah, that's it was so ridiculously powerful and so toxic and and it didn't un- require any spells to work. It just worked. Yeah, 
Yep. You took out you so you made a concerted effort to take out all the failure points, didn't you? Yep. And then I relied on a min-max battle company to just swamp the board. Mm. Whereas a lot of people were taking the Librarius Conclave with it and just having so many powers that as long as one or two of these goes off, this thing's unkillable. Um, yep. And then they so, go yeah, second was... into these, yep. the Wraith Knight with the dual apocalyptic flamers and just lose everything. Mm-hmm. And lose everything, exactly. That was always the, the big risk with that one because you, you had to go first to get all the powers off, of course. Uh, it's so such a crazy, crazy time to be alive. And so you transitioned straight from that into playing Garden Eighth Edition, didn't you? I did. I did. I was doing exactly the same thing. Yep. I remember running like a minimum of ninety fearless conscripts for the first like six months of Eighth Edition. Yeah, that was fun for a while, and that was, <laughs> was actually the 2018 season was the one where I went to the following LVO and just did an experiment where I was taking a Dark Angels Blood Angels hybrid list to figure out yep. the melee because it turns out I didn't really know what melee was about. And learned mm. a lot from that. And then it was the following season that I actually like started building the, the Castellan Guard list into the 2019 yeah. LVO. So are you saying that you in 2018 you made a, a concerted effort to just to to essentially relearn a skill set or just to, to learn a brand new part well, of the game that you were an expert at? Yeah, the 2018 LVO, I literally built a list to be like, I think this is okay if all the mechanics work. It's nothing that I've ever played before. But I don't want to play 14 Artemis Artemia Hellhounds yeah, because yeah. that was the meta at the time for Guard. And I'm like, I'm not 3D printing that many. I'm not buying China <laughs> Cast. Um, I don't feel like running that. And I'm not inspired by anything else Guard had at the time. Mm. So I just went, okay, I'm just going to play something totally new. And I basically bought and painted Blood Angel Death Company just to make that list work. And it was fun. But I learned that tri-pointing models pissed people off and mm-hmm. got contested. So I would say, I have surrounded this model. And then we would move on. They would start their movement phase, and they would fall back with that unit. And I'd be like, wait, that model couldn't move. But they'd already moved it. So now we're in a rules debate about a model that isn't where it was. That Uh, just it was such a contentious thing. And uh, yeah, you're right. It, it created so many feels bad moments for people who either didn't know it was a, it was a thing that could happen to them or because it, the first, literally like the first time it happens to you, you're like, I've lost, I've probably lost the game. Cause if you yes. don't know what's going to happen to you, it's going to lose you the game. And it was such a, it was such a feel bad element there. I do like that. It's still in the game now, but I do like that you have that desperate fallback if you need it also. That and bigger units have a, tighter coherency restriction so it's mm. harder to three point to try point yeah or if you do they just decide to fail the, the coherency check on purpose and kill the guys out or etc etc and there's so much more jank and people are so much so much more proficient at uh, avoiding the, the pitfalls of try pointing yep. that it's it's still a thing like I, st- I still do it on occasion but it's just not the bread and butter it was is it no and there's more mechanics that are just like you can't fall back at all Don't so how did that it. experiment how did that experiment go how well do you how proficient do you feel like you got with the the fight phase mechanics um not proficient enough i only went four <laughs> and two at the event and that was acceptable to me for an experiment where i'd literally never played that army style at an event before but it was still oh, fun yeah for sure dude for sure that's a pass four and two at the lvo when you're literally just taking and what, what boils down to a bit of a not not a joke but kind of a just a thought exercise i think that took both a lot of balls and uh yeah a lot of a lot of determination so i i respect you for that as well um i get chewed out when i do that stuff people call me a snowflake but <laughs> things things are different where i'm at so uh, all right so that's the 20 is that the 2017 or 2018 lvo that was the 2018 lvo and then the next yep. season i tried to go pure guard for a while mm-hmm. had a lot of fun at the atc um with a shadow sword bulgrin list Yep. And then the Castellan came along and changed everything. And um, 
that was the BAO I lost is I ended up finding out that people knew that I'd won the last two BAOs. So they looked up mm. what armies I was playing at previous events and literally hard countered my list. Yeah, man. That's um, the thing. If, if you stay at the top long enough, I think that the best, um, best, I think someone told me about Roger Federer the fact that he went and won like, I don't know, eight, eight or nine, whatever the grand slams he did in a row. And then literally the three guys who perpetually came second and third to him, uh, just trained exclusively to beat him for like a year. And then he had to completely reskill. Yep. So that, and that happens in our game all the freaking time. Well, that was my first experience with it. Mm. And how'd, um, how'd you find it? Cause is, is that a, a low point for you? The fact that you no, became that, that kind really. of blindside? I mean, it's totally fair. It's just, oh, this is a thing I need to be aware of now. People are paying mm. attention. So what were the, how did they counter you? What did they take or how did they undo the, the Brandon Grant problem? Uh, first of all, they had a bunch of one of every Space Marine Psyker to have all the spells they needed to shut down the Bulgren Star. And then they yep. had a Knight Castellan, which would perfectly counter my Shadow Sword, as I found out. Because um, I did everything right. I outflanked the Shadow Sword, cast all my abilities on it, tried to charge with it, into some scouts that yep. I was going to try point so that it wouldn't be able to be shot. Did mm -hmm. not make the charge. Um, mm. But, you know, I shot everything into the Castell and it made its three up invulnerables with three rolls. Yes. And then it returned fire and one shot of the shadow sword through minus one to hit. And I'm just like, mm -hmm. oh, well, that's yep. the last time I need to run that. And it was. What that you was the do? last game yeah. I ever ran a shadow sword. Pull one out for the shadow sword, guys. It won't be missed by many, but it will be missed by us. <laughs> but yeah, it was just so superseded, wasn't it? Because he's a Castellan that has... Uh, essentially the, the same or better amounts of firepower that has an invulnerable save that can still stomp in combat just as well. It was just a, such a better version. It was, and it could be powered up by command points at a time when guard was flush in command points. So yeah. I ended up going to Nova that year, did reasonably well at Nova um, in the Invitational and the Open. Um, I think I ended up getting third at the nice. Open. Not the Invitational. The Invitational, I got stomped. Um <laughs> And was and that playing the Castellanist? Ended up losing to Justin Curtis because his demons just decided that today was the day. And <laughs> um, he ended up going and playing Andrew Gagno and getting stomped because his dice went, well, that was enough of that. Yeah, we uh, paid out last last game. Was, no, the, the, the well is dry. <laughs> it was absolutely ridiculous how one-sided those games were. Mm. Um, and that was the year uh, Gagno won both, didn't he? He, he won the Invitational, then went, went on to win the Open as well. I don't remember if he won the Invitational. He definitely won the Open. Mm, I remember there was a year he won both, and I was like, "Bang! What a year! That what a what a event!" He was the trailblazer. He was bringing um, crusaders and giving them two up and vulnerable saves and marching them across yuck. the board. Yuck! 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 Right? It was indeed. And then uh, after that, I ended up winning the SoCal Open. Yep. There are still some extremely good bat reps on YouTube about that final because I ended up losing my Castellan turn one into mm. an Eldar list of the final table. And I'd just been stomping people up to that with the Castellan, which had not died. And everyone's like, well, that game's over. And then they come back yeah. later and it's like, Brandon pulled it off? What? So <laughs> that was one of those that the game immediately turned into, okay, I've probably lost, but let's see how far I can take this. And mm. that was a great example of that resilience you're looking for, where it's not about winning, it's just about trying your best. Because yeah. objectively, I didn't think I had a chance when the Castellan was gone. But then and, some weird plays happened. Like I had an Artemia Hellhound suicide bomb the center of his army because he left it alive with one wound and it made a 10 inch charge. Whew. Like it charged into a couple of his characters and he forgot that he always was equipped with a hand weapon, swung with his witch mm. blades. I passed all but one armor save 
rolled to explode, didn't explode. CP re-rolled it, exploded, and did six or seven D6 mortals to his army. Mm. <laughs> that was, it was so crazy, those Artemia patterns. Um, and so you transposed that resilience because that showed up again at the top table of the LVO that year. Yeah. Um, it was you versus Alex Harrison, and this spawned six months of nothing but Eldar flyers for everyone's enjoyment. Uh, no one enjoyed it. <laughs> and, uh, I don't yeah, because you lost, you lost the Castellan. Was it turn one or turn two in that game? Three. Turn and that three. was very critical. Yeah, uh, that was huge. Because I knew turn one it would probably be fine because I could zone him out from using his Jinx power on the night, and mm-hmm. he wouldn't be able to doom it either because I could zone him out far enough he couldn't get in casting range. Yep. Turn two, there was a chance he was going to be able to take it down, and I knew I'd be in trouble if he did. Turn three, he was probably going to kill it, and if he'd only killed it on turn four, I thought I'd be in pretty great shape. But he killed yeah. it turn three, so it was still a close game. Mm. And this is back when you, you you were paying out a hellacious amount of CP because it was uh, three CP to rotate. It was three CP for companions. It was um, just buckets of CP every turn to keep yep. this thing operational. And you could but, only regenerate one CP per turn at that point. Yes, but you still had a CP reroll for an involvement, and you had grand strategist as well on top of that. Yeah. Yep. So you had two rerolls. So yeah, this thing going down turn two was probably more likely than not. Yeah. Not really, no, because it would still be at pretty much full health. And it was. Oh, sorry, of course, because you said you, you, you stopped him from getting Doom off again. Yeah. yeah. So as long as he didn't doom, doom Jinx the Castellan, if he threw any shooting at it, his army was not being efficient. So he, I knew he was going to Doom Jinx something else and focus that down. Didn't expect it to be my Bulgrins or me to roll so poorly, but all the Bulgrins died turn one, which was disappointing. Yeah, wow. But uh, that was one of those games where the calculations came into mind and the fact that there was a 30 minute break between rounds came into mind because I just looked over his list and went, I am not winning this. Like, period. Mm. like if our army slam into each other and he's a list of flyers he's going to slam into me he's going yeah. to win the shooting war and i can't charge him so how am i going to win and i figured out okay i'm just going to focus on keeping models alive not on removing his models per se but on keeping mine alive and the units that are going to be left over after he's busy destroying mm. the Caselan and all my vehicles are my infantry so if I can at least remove the bits of his army that efficiently kill my infantry, I'll have those left at the end of the game. Yep. So that was his scat bikes, wasn't it? Yes. So I focused and his yeah, scat bikes and, uh, down and ignored the flyers with my plasma cannon on the night. Yeah. Did he have a guard? Did he have a guardian bomb? I can't remember. No, not a guardian bomb. Yeah, I didn't think he did. I think he had a, a unit or two of either guardians or rangers. Um, but yeah, dude. Yeah, you played that incredibly. You did everything you needed to do to win that game, and you still you still thought you were going to lose as well. It was. I didn't. I didn't see the the path for victory being easy, but I saw it as okay. If I stick to this plan, I have a good chance. Mm. Yeah, amazing perspective. And so that those that that's kind of t- from in two years, you'd won two BAOs, a SoCal um, podium de Nova, and uh, po- podiumed an LVO and won an LVO. That's a hell of a eighteen months, twenty four months, man. Yeah, I don't think I'll ever be able to beat that. To be fair, um, <laughs> I'm sorry to say because once you've done that, you're not anonymous anymore. And you mm. are going to be that person that shows up to an event and finds your hard counter more often than not. Yes, yes, yes. You'll be a known quantity and taken into account by the other top players who expect to go the distance. I'll say one of my drawbacks is my consistency. The fact that I can just focus on one army style for a long period of time. Mm. But it also makes it easier to be like, oh, Brandon's bringing that? Okay, we'll just plan to deal yeah. with it. Yeah, I was about to say the transition to something. So you you dedicate yourself to factions at a time. Yeah? I mean, you play Dark Angels for. I, I noticed you played Dark Angels for a minimum of twelve months straight, if not two years. Yes, um, and it's, it's pretty much the same for Guard, really, except for adding the Castellan. You played Mono Guard for almost all of Eighth Edition. Yes, 
That's correct. Yeah. So what, what draws you to that? Do you feel like you need to do that in order to gain some level of faction mastery or proficiency? Or is that just how you just, I, I like this one, I'm attached to this one, I'm playing it for a while? Or is it just you play it until you're bored? I think I'm that person who says, oh boy, dog food again, because I can just <laughs> do the same thing over and over and over again without getting bored more than most yeah. people. But again, it comes back to burnout as well. If you're sacrificing enormous personal time and giving yourself all this extra stress and it's more stressful than fun, then the burnout's going to set in. I'm not going to want to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very well said. So in saying that, do you find that that dedication to a faction is a, a detriment or an advantage into you know 8th and ninth edition with a hellacious and rapid rule set and also things that are changing consistently and constantly like, you know, chapter approved and FAQs? I think for the vast majority of people, picking a faction and sticking with it is an advantage versus trying to be good at everything, master of none. Because mm-hmm. the subtle things I could do with Guard, like even 2019, no, 2020's LVO. Uh, my last game, it was a guard mirror because I took pure guard to the Space Marine meta LVO. Yes, I remember. And still went five and one, which was crazy to me. Um, but my last game was a guard mirror match, and his army was reasonably well constructed. But I knew every subtle thing that I could do with my guard army mm-hmm. that no one else knew, and it wasn't even close. I think I got 40 points. Because I'm wow. like, oh, I know exactly what you're going to do, and I know how to counter it, and I'm going to do stuff you've never seen before. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's really powerful. Um, the faction mastery concept is really powerful because it gives you the ability to flip um, flip results, essentially. Like things like the, the the Alex Harrison game. You go in that. Every, I, I wrote you off, unfortunately. I was like, oh, man, those flies are probably going to win. You and everyone that, else. That, well, do and you too. You were like, ah, I'm probably screwed, but you found a way to win. And I think that those things only come with a level of proficiency like akin to faction mastery. Yeah. Yes, that's the only way you're going to win a game like that is if you're at such mm. a ridiculous level of mastery that everyone on the sidelines says there's no way, and you still are. Well, able. legit, I think uh, I think Harrison didn't have that with his army, and you had it with yours, and I think that was the difference because it was obvious. Uh, I think I, I even I can't remember if I heard, but I think he only had somewhere in the region of like ten or under ten games with that list going into the event. Um, and so, but mind you, he still had a somewhere in the region of twenty. If that's true, he had somewhere like twenty but games with that. On top of that, he'd already played probably the way I'd played, which was going into that. I think I'd played six or seven Castellans. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, of course. And you know, in a nine-game tournament, mm. so I'm pretty sure that he'd played my list or a variant of it repeatedly over the course of the event, which meant that he was like, "I've already done this five times. Yeah. I'm just going to follow the same plan and have the mm. same result." So. There's a question I've been I've had in the back of my head for a while. How much practice do you get in? How how often do you, I know you say you do a huge amount of due diligence, but how many how many times do you put a list on the table before you take it to an event? Not nearly often enough, which is a strange exception in competitive 40k, and it isn't something I'd recommend if you're trying to get as good as possible. Of course, mm-hmm. um, but I do a lot of theory crafting, which is the idea that a lot of options that other people might eliminate during a practice game, I'll just eliminate just by thinking about it. Mm. And then I'll come up with a set of theories, bring a practice list that's not intended to be fully optimal, but test some of those theories, and then I'll go back and polish again. So every time mm. I do practice, it's very deliberate because, in, for example, my latest build, I'll think, oh, Zephyrim are good. Should I bring a 10 squad or a 5 squad? Should I bring two fives? And I'll build an army that has 
10 Zephyrim and two squads of five, see how they do, and then go back to the drawing board and see how it fits into mm. the army. Because I'm like, I'm not super familiar with this. Is this a good idea? I think they'll be able to do this. And when I get to the table, I'm testing those theories. Mm. So in that, in that two years where you had the ridiculous, absurdly amazing success, how many little events were you going to between the big ones? Almost none. Because mm, I, I, I knew that I already knew that answer because I think I've heard you say it before. But it's because that seems absurd to me. That seems ridiculous to me. But then you're a guy who also said, "Hey, I took a I took an experimental list to a an LVO that I think you, you'd had a good season. You weren't in. I don't think you were going to win that season. No, but you had a chance fact, to pull very high in 2017. Uh, I won best Dark Angels at the after LVO yep. in 2018. If I just shown up with a guard army and gone three and three, I would have won best guard, but I didn't. Um, and then in the 2019, of course, when I won the ITC, I won best guard. And then I think I won best guard in 2020, but I wasn't in it for the participation trophy. I was just in mm. it because I'm like, this is how I'd like to play 40 K and try something because the style of guard army required to be competitive right now doesn't appeal to me. So I'm just not going to do mm. it. Fair. And we're going to talk, uh, uh, we've got a huge amount of questions from the patrons about guard in ninth edition and how to play them, how, what's good, what's bad. We'll deep dive that in part two. Uh, r- wrapping up though, in so in 2020, what, you managed to go to the LVO, uh, like everybody else, I, have you done much with your downtime, hobby-wise? Um, I have a nearly fully painted Sisters of Battle Army now. Yeah, what's, so, what's fully painted? Do you have what, uh, 3,000 points, 10,000 points? Um, I mean, like, how, how many mo- how, how many models do you think oh, you need I, to have a? I never counted up the points, but it's definitely enough for me to run a two thousand point list comfortably with options. Nice, nice, nice. That was a bit of my next question. Like, how extensive with your dedication to a certain faction? How extensive is your collection for those factions? Um, the way I collected Dark Angels was much more reasonable. It was, oh, allies <laughs> are a thing. I'm going to just buy a Dark Angels librarian and five scouts because that was the minimum number of allies you needed. I'm going to slot them in a guard yep. army, see how it does. Because at the time, guard didn't have psychers either. And mm. then it slowly built up to, I'm going to have two librarians. I'm going to add a tech marine. I'm going to add some tactical yeah. marines, maybe a drop pod. And it built from there into a battle company at a reasonable pace. Like It was easy to collect. But in this case, especially with downtime, I went from end of 2020, no sisters, to, or sorry, beginning of 2020, no sisters, to 2021, full sisters army but there wasn't much in between mm. for events other than tabletop simulator yeah have you played tts much not that much um but the games i have played on it were instructive nice 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 so how how much ninth edition do you have under your belt have you played many physical games at all not nearly enough so it's a thing where <laughs> with covid restrictions being eased in the near future in southern california i hope to get in more games more often like at least once or twice a month but yep. we'll see not something i'm certain about yeah what are your so what are your aspirations moving forward do you hope to be an lvo champion again or you just don't even look at it that way like what does brandon grant want out of 2021 2022 essentially so i'll tell you right now i've already come to terms with being unlikely to ever be an lvo champion again just because the number of things that have to go right to win nine games mm. of 40k in a row with your preferred army is huge like first of all your yeah. army has to be in ascendancy it needs to be one of the best armies in the game you need to be at the top of your game with that army and um you also need a little bit of luck on your side like winning nine games in a row is not something you're going to do all the time yeah exactly right so what are your aspirations then what, what do you hope for the future for mr grant the same as my aspirations have always been avoid burnout have a lot yep. of fun 
and play as well as I possibly can. Fantastic, dude. Uh, been an absolute pleasure uh, to talk to you as well. Uh, in, in saying that, you avoiding burnout. Are you able to talk to that a little bit? Have you ever been close to burnout with 40K? Not with 40K, thankfully, but with some other things, yes. So you, you, willing, to, you willing to talk to that? Sure. I used to play the piano, and then I got okay. burned out on it. So how did that happen? I played it all the time, and eventually I went, this isn't worth my time anymore for the amount of pleasure mm. I'm getting out of it. So you played it for enjoyment, or you were a professional player, or in a band, or oh no, just at home casually. But mm. I had a teacher for nice. a while. Yeah, I know how privileged am I? I had a teacher to teach me. <laughs> at home. But it went from this is cool to this is a burden, and I do mm. want to avoid that with future hobbies. You got any tips for people out there how to avoid forty k becoming a burden? I see, and I get messages from so many people who want to jump in and be ultra competitive and ultra good at the game straight away. Um, and you're a, a gentleman who certainly has reached the absolute highs um, that singles competition can provide uh, while avoiding that burnout and having like what a, a, almost a twenty having a twenty year history in the game. Yes. What's your secret? Um, so I'll tell you how not to do it. So my muse and part time mentor Michael Snyder was someone who helped me become a lot more competitive by constantly bouncing mm -hmm. ideas off of each other. So for example, at the 2017 LVO, he ran an identical list to mine. And at the 2019 yep. LVO, he ran a nearly identical list to mine <laughs> because we just talk about our, our games all the time. But after the 2020 LVO, he's experienced a lot of burnout. And part of that was that he shifted to playing Space Marines back when they were at their Zenith Yep. And then realized he really didn't like their play style at all. He wanted to play mm. Tyranids or a Gene Stealer cult way more, or even Necrons. Mm. But by the time he realized that those armies would be better, he'd hit his 40k burnout. He said, these mm. games aren't enjoyable. I don't like this army. I don't like this play style. Yeah. I don't like this game. And he's since moved on to Star Wars Legion. Wow, there you go. Pull one out for Mr. Snyder. Hopefully so, he can come back uh, someday sometime. I hope so. I don't think it's completely out of the cards, but my advice would be don't overcommit to following the latest competitive trends if the latest competitive trend is one you will not enjoy playing. So you'll win games and lose friends, and then you won't play 40K anymore. Because that's yes. what happened is his local um, tournament scene got tired of Space Marines just mopping the floor with everyone, and it kind of disappeared. Yep, yep. Spot on, dude. The, the, and that's a, a certainly something that I've come up against as well. Uh, so there's a certain element of gatekeeping that goes along with people always playing the strongest factions. And it's, it's inadvertent. He's not doing anything on purpose. But when new players come into the scene and they just get essentially never heard of you, you come up you come up against a, you know, a, for lack of a better term, a, a big player in the scene or a big fish and just get absolutely stomped and think that that's just what's going to happen in every game. Um, having that, like having every player in your scene just playing the most competitive things possible um, is actually possibly a turnoff for new players. I agree. But it also is a turn on if they're playing an army that suits their play style and they really enjoy mm. playing. Oh, yeah. Never, never disregard your own enjoyment to try and get other people into the scene, unless that's a, a hat you're willing to wear for a long-term period of time. You want to be a martyr for the cause? Because uh, I certainly don't... Uh, that's another great way to burn out and, and lose your enthusiasm Correct. for 40K. So um, that was, again, why it was nice for me to ally in to my guard army, Dark Angels. And eventually, when mm. guard were totally not competitive at all, I was able to go completely Dark Angels and still have a good time because I liked the way the army played. But yeah. if I hadn't done that, that might have been a burnout because 8th edition was guardsmen being totally non-viable. 
Yeah. Or sorry, seventh well, edition, not eighth edition. Yeah, seventh, seventh edition was. Uh, it's funny. I had my most success with uh, in the game playing guard in seventh edition, and it was just it's just such a wacky, a, a wacky series of events that enabled it. But uh, this, it's it's really interesting how those things come about. Now, in talking about Dark Angels, now you're not interested in playing Dark Angels at the moment. Nope. Tell us why. Um, I've moved on from playing Marine equivalent armies. I prefer normal human equivalent armies and sisters are mm. appealing to me for that reason is that where you get your love for guard because i personally love guard for the fact that they are literally just dudes like the guy you walk past that brush shoulders oh. with at the supermarket we could, have, a guard we could have an entire episode on that but i think we're nearing the end of our hour and we'll save we some are. That for part two we will say we'll save some of the theory and some of our love and passion for our our, uh, our guardsmen for part two. Thank you so much, uh, Mr. Grant, for being on. Is there anything you'd like to plug before we finish up? Um, sure. Uh, if this episode's airing before Friday, March nineteenth, I will be on the Scardcast with Scary at eleven a.m. Eastern time. Jump on. Uh, yeah, please support Scar. He's doing some amazing stuff with us soon too because he'll be doing my um, Dark Eldar review, which is being uh, pre-released this weekend. Oh, it's an exciting so, time to be Scar, that's for sure. Oh, it's, <laughs> yeah, exactly right. He gets this like once every three years, he just like ascends and goes Super Saiyan with uh, all his content and things around a uh, new book for his best and most beloved faction. But yeah, please support Scar. Please support Brandon and tune in. And hopefully you guys have enjoyed this uh, journey through Brandon's story in the game. Um, some of the highs, some of the not so lows, some of the analytical portions rather than the lows. Uh, but dude, thank you so much uh, for your insights. And do, you're actually... If I admired you before, I admire you more now. And hopefully that's something that can be said for all our listeners as well. I appreciate that, Adam. That's very kind. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I really aspire to be as analytical about my losses as you do. I, I'm not sure I'm, I'm quite as good as that. But anyway, we'll, uh, at that point, we'll leave you guys. Please come and join us over on part two where Brandon and I will be going through the huge swathe of listener questions, patron questions that have been given to us. We'll be talking about guard. We'll be talking about um, our perspectives and most likely uh, Brandon's thoughts moving forward with certain factions that he is beloved by. If you want to be asking questions of guys like Brandon or myself, please jump over onto Patreon. Look for Art of War down under or look us up on the Art of war40k.com and uh, wherever else you may find us. Thank you so much, guys. Take care and look after yourselves. Say good night, Brandon. Good night. Thank you for listening to Art of War Down Under, a content review podcast for Warhammer 40k, hosted by Adam Camilleri, produced by Seamus Ronan. Enjoyed the show? Want your lists reviewed and the content you heard put into practice? Sign up to our Patreon and connect with us online or on Facebook. Just search for Art of War Down Under. Signing out from tomorrow.